0: on material and or administrative slash housekeeping type things. Okay. So today we're going to talk about static analysis briefly because we're going to spend a fair bit of time on labs doing more problem solving related to static analyses. And then we're going to talk about dynamic analysis which is more of like a traditional lecture kind of thing talking about some of the interesting technology that is available for clinician clinicians and research to do um, kinematic and kinetic analyses. Some of you guys that have done exercise science in undergrad here and elsewhere will have seen some of that instrumentation previously. Um, I'm gonna just very briefly talk about different types of instrumentation. So static analyses, here are your course objectives. Um, In the lab last week we talked a lot and we had you go through a bunch of things in the self-directed study about moment arm, and I wanted to bring this up and clarify because um, there was a bunch of questions and it was mostly the same question from lots of different folks, so I wanted to talk about it to make sure everyone was on the same page. And so moment arm, when it's internal moment arm that we're talking about, it's the perpendicular distance from the line of force to the axis of rotation of the joint center, or the joint center either way. And that changes based on the joint angle. So here we have a generic elbow joint or an elbow joint at different angles of elbow flexion so here you're relatively extended position 90 degrees and then you're getting into a relatively end range flexed position and as I said it's the perpendicular distance so 90 degrees from the line of muscle force and when the line of muscle force crosses the joint as in this example it's easy to see because it approximates the muscle but when you come here your line of muscle force is extended distally past that. So the line of force theoretically goes in both directions. And so the moment arm is the perpendicular distance, so a 90 degree angle to the joint center. And you can see as you go from a relatively extended position that perpendicular distance is going to increase and then it's going to become maximal at 90 degrees. And then it's going to start to decrease as you go into the end ranged flexed position. And why do we care what the moment arm is? Because we use that to calculate torque, correct. So moment arm times the force which causes rotation, or the muscle force is what co- what's creates the torque, or how we calculate the torque. So is everyone clear on that? I know we talked about it and hopefully clarified it in lab or clarified it in lab last week, but I wanted to talk about it again, because it's going to get a little bit more confusing the next slide. <laughs> so I want to clarify to confuse. But is everyone OK so far? Okay, good. So, that is the most common method to talk about internal, determining internal torque, and that's what we used, and so that's what we said here. It's the product of muscle force, um, and it's perpendicular distance, um, internal moment arm. So, as you can see here, this is what we used um, previously. Here's the muscle force approximating the muscle. Here's the perpendicular distance to the axis rotation. That's exactly what we just said. Now, you can also calculate torque by looking at the rotational component of the muscle force, which is your muscle force n, which is your normal force, or it could be muscle force y, because we talked about it relative to a local coordinate system. And so if I were to draw your local coordinate system on here, we would go like this. That's an arrow, sorry. And this would be y, and this would be x. Oh, hello, there. So there's my local coordinate system. So we talked about a muscle force Y, but it's the same thing, right? So that's just the component which causes rotation. The other component causes what? Not distraction. Compression. 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 So if I were to look at this is the component that causes rotation into elbow flexion. The other component causes compression into the joint surface, remember? So this is the resultant force. And you would attach the components on, so it would either be there or you would transverse this rotation to there to get your resultant force. So the muscle force is the resultant, two components. One causes rotation, one causes joint compression. If I wanted to calculate torque, I could do what I just said before. Resultant force, your muscle force times the perpendicular distance to the axis of rotation. That's what we just said. But we can also look at the part that causes rotation, so your muscle force Y times its moment arm, which is going to be longer. And the product of those is going to be the same. So, the internal moment arm, when I talk about torque, I usually talk about the perpendicular distance, like we just talked about, which is the muscle force, total muscle force, times the perpendicular distance, the X-rotation. That's most commonly what I'm referring to when I refer to calculating torque. But you can also calculate it by the force which causes rotation at the joint times its moment arm, which is going to be increased, and the product of each of those is going to be the same. Does everyone... Okay with that? I know it's a little bit confusing. And that's why I kind of, when I showed the example last week of the elbow at different joint angles and we talked about the parts that cause rotation, the parts that cause compression and distraction, they were calculating and showing this moment arm relative to the force that caused torque, which is why I didn't talk about it because I didn't want to get you guys confused until you were set with the most common method and then now I can hopefully bring that in and have you guys understanding. all good in the hood? All right. So this is the slide that I was talking about last week and they're going to show the moment arm relative to the component which causes rotation just like I mentioned. Now here they're showing the perpendicular distance from the line of force, why is that? Correct, because the muscle force at this joint angle all causes rotation, right? So here, part of it, this component, the x component is causing compression and this component is causing rotation, so the part that causes rotation by its moment arm, that's how we calculate the torque there. This component here, the muscle force is equal to the portion which causes rotation, so therefore the moment arm is the perpendicular distance to the joint axis because the muscle force is equal to the muscle force which causes rotation. Does that make sense? Okay. When you guys do your calculations, I would suggest using, oh that shows up, that's fine, uh, the muscle force times the perpendicular distance to the arm, so it's going to make your lives easier, and have you do less calculations in order to determine the torque that's created, um, or that's caused by that muscle. Here the same thing is occurring, so this is the component which causes rotation. Now here we have a component which is causing distraction, but again I'm not terribly concerned about this component because again it's causing distraction, so the internal moment arm is a distance from the component where it causes rotation to the axis of rotation. Same as it same as this one, just a different joint angle. And so I'll just leave that alone. So that's good. So that's the end of the moment arm torque discussion. Um, now we're gonna go into static analysis key points. So we're gonna do a little bit of math. I ask you guys to bring calculators. Um, so if you have those, pull those out. Um, I know you guys, some of them have your computer and that's fine too. So when we're doing, and when you guys are doing static analyses for the lab, and this is going to hold true for the exam, exam as well, we're going to assume that all systems are in a state of equilibrium, um, which means that they have a constant velocity, and we're saying it's static, so we're going to say that it's zero, so it's not moving, so it's always going to be a static situation. Again, this is just to make your lives easier, and to give you guys um, an ability to appreciate the concepts without making it super mathematically intensive, um, so you can thank me and at the same time the sum of forces and the sum of torques is going to be equal to zero. Um, which means that there again there's no movement that's occurring and the forces are equal and opposite to one another. So that you have way you're creating the static situation that we're going to be helping to analyze. <coughs> to? Okay. <laughs> so the key equations um, Based on those components, is that the sum of force for the system is going to be equal to zero, and the sum of force and the sum of um, force in the x and the y direction are both going to be equal to zero, and then the sum of torques is going to be equal to zero. So that squiggly thing, is that sigma, Yes. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so that's equal to sum of. So it's the sum of forces are equal to zero, and the sum of torques are equal to zero. So those are the equations that we're going to be utilizing. And so this is the problem that we're going to go through and you guys are going to go through other similar ones in lab today. And what you will notice for all the problems that you're going to be solving is that the joint angles and the muscle forces are going to be perpendicular to one another. And again, this is another thing to help simplify things and make your lives easier. And I'll show you guys what happens when it's not perpendicular But for all the problems that you're going to be doing and expected to do, we're going to be talking about a perpendicular situation. So here we have an example, and this is one that we're going to be working through. You have an individual who's holding some sort of load in their hand, and the load weight is 60 newtons. It's going to be acting at a moment arm of 0.35 meters. A static situation, again, so there's no movement that's occurring here. They also have a load associated with the segment weight and that segment weight uh, is 17 newtons with a moment arm of .15 meters. So these will all be given to you when you guys are doing your calculations, just like it is here. Um, Your axis rotation is there and you have a muscle force which is counteracting the segment weight and the load weight. Your muscle force is unknown, it has a moment arm of 0.5 meters, and then you have an elbow joint force, a joint reaction force occurring at the elbow, and that is unknown. So we're going to be solving for the muscle force required to hold up this load and the weight of the forearm or the segment weight, and then there's going to be a joint reaction force associated with that as well. Why did I not give a moment arm for the joint reaction force? It's perpendicular. The muscle is perpendicular to the... uh, the Muscle force is perpendicular, so there's not... The distance from the muscle attachment is the moment arm. There's no moment arm. Correct, okay. up front. So why is there no moment arm? Um, because it would go through the joint axis, so Correct. there's no distance from it. Correct. So a joint reaction force acts at the joint center or the axis of rotation, so there's no mar- moment arm associated with it. The moment arm is zero because the joint force acts to the joint center. And so the moment arm is zero because it's acting at the joint center, so the distance from itself is nothing. So when you have a joint force you're not going to have a joint torque because the moment arm is equal to zero. So any force times zero is going to have, the moment arm of zero is going to have zero torque associated with it. Yes? That's compression or distraction of the joint, correct. So that's the compression of the distraction at the joint. we okay so far? Because this is all going to build on, so if there's any questions, stop me, because you will get further and further lost. Can you explain what again? Explain what again? The joint reaction force? Yeah. Okay. So the joint reaction force, so I'll draw an arrow here. So most joint reaction forces are going to act opposite. What happened there? So the muscle force will just um, start, we should start at the beginning. So we've got X. Local coordinate system to start with. Load. Segment weight due to gravity, so I'm drawing in my forces. Muscle force counteracting those. And that's going to be my JRF, joint reaction force. Or elbow joint force is the same. So, by convention, your joint reaction force is going to be in the opposite direction to the muscle force. And, let me do here one, two. Uh, actually, let me try this. You have to imagine that my lines are straight. So is everyone okay with the forces that I've drawn as the red arrows? And the joint reaction force acts in the opposite direction of the muscle force acting at the joint center, so it's going to cause compression or distraction like we had mentioned earlier. Now with the blue lines, which are supposed to be straight, I intended to lay out my moment arms. So the moment arm associated with the muscle force is that blue line there and that distance is 0.05 meters then I have a blue line here, which is straight, um, from the axis rotation perpendicular distance to the segment weight, and that moment arm is 0.15 meters. And then the load moment arm is this blue line here, which is 0.35 meters. Now, there's no blue line, or there's no moment arm for the joint reaction force because it acts at the joint center, so there's no torque associated with that. Does that clarify? Yeah, I didn't know you were calling it something. Okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the problem solving, we draw the free body diagram, which I kind of just did on top of the stick figure. So does anyone want me to do that again? Are you guys... Yes? Okay. No problemo. Uh-huh. Yes. If we're drawing a free body diagram, stick figures okay? For sure, um, but remember that testing purposes is multiple choice. So you can draw it however you want. okay way to consider For sure, definitely. I think it's the best way to do it. Okay. And when you guys are doing your exam, it's probably best to have pieces of paper available to draw on okay. because it's all obviously going to be computerized. So if you want to draw free body diagrams, you should. You can obviously have whatever available to do that. Um, so I'm drawing my Fibrati diagram again. <laughs> and so here we have 16 Newtons. So there's my free body diagram, sort of redrawn. The red are the forces. Um, the seg- or the load weight is 60 newtons and the segment weight is 17 newtons. I apologize if you can't read my scribbles. That's moment arm is 0.05. This moment arm is 0.15. And I co- what's the other one? 0.35? Is that right? Yeah. 0.35. So that's what I have known so far. And I need to calculate two things. I need to calculate the muscle force, and I need to calculate the elbow joint force. Um, so this is, I've just used this as my free body diagram. I indicate um, my axes, I labeled my moment arms, and I labeled my known forces. So that's where we are so far. So now what I need to do, sorry I have to keep drawing these in, I'm not going to label it. So I'm going to calculate, the first thing I'm going to do is calculate my torque associated with my muscle force because I have the moment arm but I don't have the force associated with that. I have this moment arm and this force, and I have this moment arm and this force, which I will label 60, 17 newtons, newtons, 0.35, 0.15, 0.05. Is everyone okay with that so far? So I'm going to, My torques is equal to zero, which means that zero is going to be equal to. And remember, torques are directional, so I have two directions that are, or the load in the segment are going in the same direction. My muscle force is going in the opposite direction. It's going to set them opposite to one another. So the sum of torque associated with the segment weight which is going to be the segment weight times its moment arm, because that's going in one direction, the same direction as the load weight times its moment arm, minus the muscle force times its moment arm. Is everyone okay with that equation so far? Yes? Is there any way you can make that bigger? That's kind of hard to see back here. Um, I can. If you can just set it right here to Is that better or no? That's better that not better for everyone? Okay, so sorry you my So, my segment weight is 17 newtons times its moment arm, which is 0.15 meters. Sorry, I'm trying to squeeze this all in so I know it's small. Plus the load weight, which is 60 newtons times its moment arm, which is 0.35 meters. I'll put in units at the end. And then I have the muscle force, which is unknown. Times its moment arm, which is 0.05. Everyone, right there so far. Calculators. Somebody check my math. 437. 437. Don't check my math. Just tell me what to write down. 437 newton meters plus. Oh no, that's the whole thing. Oh, whole thing. sorry. 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 I'll slow it down. We'll do step by step. So we have 17 newtons times its moment which is 0.15 meters. So it's 2.55 newton meters. And that is the torque associated with what? Segment, correct. So that's the torque associated with the segment. In addition to... 60 times its moment arm, which is 0.35 meters. And that's going to be 21 newton meters, which is the torque associated with the load, correct? Minus the muscle force times its moment arm, which is 0.05. Now I'm going to, and this is all equal to zero, so I'm going to move my muscle force. Or my muscle torque, excuse me, associated with muscle force over to this side to set them equal to one another. So I need to add it to that side, which means I have to add it to this side. Times.05 is going to be equal to 21 plus 2.55 is equal to 23.55 Newton meters. It's going to be equal to the muscle force times the torque associated with the muscle contraction. And then I'm going to divide by 0.05 to solve for the muscle force. And 471, and that's in meters, so that's newtons. Is everyone okay with that? Does anyone have a question with that? Yes. So the force would be 471.2. Not yet. We'll get there in a second. Okay. So the torque and the muscle force, as calculated using the sum of torques, is 471 newton. Okay, so everyone's good with sum of the torques. Now we're going to look at the sum of forces because we've we're trying, still trying to calculate for the elbow joint force, the joint reaction force. That's again, they're going to be the same thing. Well, now that we now we have our muscle force as 471 newtons, so we're going to calculate the sum of forces in the y direction is equal to zero. So our forces are equal to zero. why are we only looking at the y-direction? Because that's the direction that the joint force acts in. Because that's the direction that the joint force acts in, which again is opposite to the muscle force. And the x-component of the joint reaction force is going to be what relative to the joint axis? Zero. So there is no x-component in this equation. So it's all going to be the y-component. So that's why we're looking at the sum of force in the y-direction is equal to zero. And remember we said before that, um, force of the direction on the joint force is assumed to be opposite to the muscle force. So, I'm gonna put my forces back in. Force here, force here, force here. All the same direction. And my muscle force is the opposite direction. 60, what was the other one? 17. 471 question So if I'm going to assign a direction to each of these I'm going to make my muscle force negative only because it's going in the opposite direction which means that this is positive this is positive and that will also be positive cuz they're all going in the same direction You could do those either way you could. You could just do the opposite and you're going to get the same mathematically correct. So the, yeah, it wouldn't make any difference. It's arbitrary, which is positive, which is negative. As long as they all line up based on the direction, it's fine. Save me a workout this afternoon. So, it's my sum of force equal to zero. So, this is just what's on the board here, or excuse me, on the overhead. Segment weight, same direction as the load weight, same direction as the joint force, different directions than the muscle force. And all I'm doing is plugging in here. So my segment weight, um, actually, switch it over. So I'm going to add my muscle force here. So I add it on this side, add on both sides to get this equation equaled out. And then my muscle force, sorry, that should be an F. 471 newtons equal to the segment weight. Uh, 17 plus 60 plus... And what's that math, anybody? 394. So, joint force is equal to 394. Questions about that? All I just did here was plug in the forces that I have. Everyone's good. Yes, question? Uh, So it doesn't matter that I'm the negative, just show the direction. The negative will be associated with the direction, correct. So if you assign your 17 and your 60 and your joint force as a negative, then this will be positive. But the actual we're looking for is the value associated with that, which is the magnitude. And the direction is going to be based on the arrow, which is pointing toward the joint force, again, opposite to the muscle force. So that wouldn't be wrong. Exactly. So it's based on your coordinate system. So if you were to have this to solve on your exam, and what's the answer? 394. What I'm going to be looking for is the magnitude. And if there's a plus or minus associated with that, I'm expecting you guys to know the coordinate system and the orientation of the arrows as opposed to which is positive and which is negative. So you'll to see. The I'll give you a coordinate system, or I'll say this is my plus 17, is shown here. This is plus 60. It has to be, therefore, it has to be positive, and ninety four. If these were negative, then that would have to be negative in order to be the correct answer. So it's directional based on the orientation of your forces and your coordinate system. So if I were to put my coordinate system on here, which I should do, oh boy, okay, so that's going to be y, x, y. So my y is positive going down, which means that all of those would be positive going down. And then my Joint force would be positive going down. Now if my coordinate system was in blue, then this would have to be negative, this would have to be negative, and that would have to be negative. So the magnitude is correct, and then the direction or the positive or negative is based on the coordinate system as shown here in blue and red. Any other questions about that? It seems easy when I do it. When you guys get to do it in lab, you'll struggle through it a little bit, and that's good. That's why we have those labs, so you guys can struggle through it and think about it and those types of things. So you'll see this again, but I wanted to introduce one, and that's spend a ton of time on it because you guys will get to practice it in lab, and that's when you really hopefully cram it in there somewhere. On top of patho and anatomy and basic skills and professional issues. Everybody? Okay, Okay. so that's a situation when all the forces are perpendicular and aligned with the coordinate system. Like I said, that's what you guys will be testing on, that's what you guys will practice in lab. Um, but that's obviously not always the case because we don't walk around like this, right? We do things that are not at 90 degrees to one another, <laughs> unless you're like Lego man or Mr. Roboto or something. <laughs> um, so we have to use the right triangle math in order to do some calculations sometimes when we're looking at calculating um, forces, when we're looking at calculating joint insertion angles, when we're calculating moment arms and those types of things. So Pythagorean Theorem, you guys maybe or maybe do not remember this. A squared plus B squared equals C squared and that's going to be the distances or the magnitudes of the side of the right triangle. And then there's going to be equations associated with determining theta, or the joint angle in a right triangle, related to the sine, the cosine, and the tangent of those angles, or of that angle. So what is, how do you determine the sine of that angle? What's the equation for that? Opposite Opposite over hypotenuse. So sine is opposite, so the opposite side of this is A, over the hypotenuse is C. So in this one, it's going to be A divided by C. Oh, sorry. That would be wrong. Oh, no. That's correct. <laughs> I was trying to do it with a little mnemonic in my head, and I failed because A doesn't line up with O. OK. What about cosine? Adjacent over hypotenuse, which is B. Over C, and then the tangent? Opposite, Opposite, over adjacent. Opposite over adjacent, which is going to be A over B. How did you guys remember that when you were taking trig in Saddle high school? <laughs> Sokotoa is how I learned it. What it? you Saddle our horses, canter away happily to other adventures. Ooh. Saddle our horses, canter away happily to other adventures. <laughs> anyway. That's when you grew up in Kentucky. <laughs> Anybody else have any? Had Oscar had a heap of apples. Yeah, that's. I also heard that one too. Oscar had a heap of apples, some corn too. Did you have some corn too? No. That corn. So it's the same thing. Um, opposite over, so uh, uh, Adjacent over hypotenuse, Oscar had a heap opposite over hypotenuse of apples. Adjacent or opposite adjacent, and then some corn too to line you up with. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, this is just to remind you guys all about the right triangle, because it plays a role when you're doing the math. I like the galloping horses though. Okay, so now we have a similar situation. We've got a load, we've got a segment weight, we got an axis rotation. We got a muscle force, but now our joint angle is not perpendicular to the muscle force or to the um, coordinate system, which we're going to oh, include here. So we've got x and y. So, like we talked about before, we have to decompose our forces into their component parts which cause what? Rotation and compression or distraction, right? So my load weight the resultant of that is going to be the same as my segment weight acting down due to gravity. But because my forearm isn't perpendicular to my um, humerus It's an angle of 30 degrees, that's going to be the theta angle, which we use the right triangle for, which don't worry about for right now. But there's going to be components associated with this load weight which cause rotation. How is that going to be oriented? Perpendicular to what? To the moment arm. Correct. It'll be perpendicular to the moment arm in which direction? Use your hands, somebody show me with their hands. Down, right. So the part that causes rotation to be perpendicular that should be it should be perpendicular to a line with the forearm. So this is gonna be my load weight as nice. So make your lives easy, remember, and that's what I did not do, I made my life difficult. So we need to align our coordinate system with the distal component of our free body diagram. I didn't do that up here, that's why I crossed it out. Just a learning experience for everyone. So I have an X and a Y component and the load weight is going to have a Y component associated with it and an X component associated with it, right? So I can decompose my resultant force, which is my load weight associated with gravity, into a component which causes rotation. That's going to be the perpendicular to the forearm. And then a, point, a component which causes what? If I have a force acting this way, what's happening to the elbow joint? Distraction. Distraction, good. Now what about the segment weight? What are the components going to look like for that? They're going to look the same. They're going to be in the same direction, correct? So I'm going to have my segment, that's not an S, segment weight Y, segment weight X. Why is my component for the segment weight Y, why is the magnitude of that smaller than the magnitude of that? They're both causing rotation. The load is heavier. Right. So, the force associated with the load is greater for the load weight than it is for the segment weight. So, there's a direction and a magnitude associated with each of these. Now, my muscle force. Component which causes rotation going in which direction? So that's the resultant force, correct? Using my coordinate system, describe which direction the muscle force rotational component will be going, or muscle force y. It'll be a negative negative y, correct. So here's my muscle force y. And then I have another component, which is my x component, which is going to be going in which which direction based on my coordinate system? Negative Negative x, correct. So, all I've done here, which is what we did in last class, same exact thing, is I take my components, or I take my resultant forces and I break them down into the components. That's the vector decomposition based on my local coordinate system. And we know that there's a component that causes rotation and a component which causes distraction and or compression. Am I having distraction or compression based on my muscle force? Compression, why do I know that? Because the torque, or excuse me, the force associated with that is going toward the joint axis, which is in the negative x direction. So my muscle force x is this direction, which is parallel down here, so it's causing compression. How do you know what's greater? And what if the weight was greater than the muscle force? Would it be distraction? As far as this component causing compression? Yeah, I guess I just, you talk really fast sometimes, and I hear distraction <laughs> compression, and I'm like, I don't know. Okay, I talk really fast all the time. <laughs> 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 okay, so, the muscle force is going to be in an opposite direction to the segment weight and the load weight. Because we're in a position of equilibrium, so this is not moving, so this is static. That's why I think I get confused, and how would you tell whether it's one or the other if it's just static. What because Does it's not be the same as compression if its standing still?: No, because the segment weights and the load weight, so their resultant force is going to be straight down due to gravity. And they're going to have a component which causes rotation, and a component which causes distraction because it's pulling the forearm down. So that's this arrow, which you can't really see here. I'll put it in blue to make it easier to see. So that's going in that direction, and that's going in that direction. So those are both distracting or separating the elbow joint. Now in order for me to be static and not moving, I have to counteract that with my muscle force. So my rotational component's gonna be the same, but also I have to apply compression with that, which is gonna be acting in this direction toward the axis of rotation, um, equal so that If these weren't equal, if these loads were greater, I would dislocate my elbow. Because the muscle force which causes compression would be less than the forces which cause distraction. So you were just describing the force as one or the other. I thought you were saying the overall system was in one or the other state. That's what I... I No, no, the overall system is in equilibrium, so it's not moving. Okay. So it's going to be neutral as far as compression or distraction. I do speak quickly, that's why... I always ask, is everybody okay? And now that's why we talk about these things. It's a whole sequence. Is everybody okay? (laughs) So, If I want to do the calculations to determine my muscle forces, I need to look at the angle the muscle force broken down into its components. I'll use the right hand math, or the right hand triangle math, to get the components associated with that. I've got my insertion angle and I've got my load weight, or my segment weight associated with that. In order to get my components and my segment weight, I use the angle, the sine of that angle, based on the right triangle, times the segment weight, in the x direction, the y direction is the cosine angle times the segment weight. Everybody following me? You don't have to be following me, it's okay. That's why I'm talking really quickly. Okay. So load weight, 60 newtons, and you're gonna find the components of that, use the right hand triangle the sine and cosine associated with the components of the load weight which cause rotation and cause compression. Joint force uh, again does not have a moment arm associated with that, and then you can find the components associated with that, and there's your moment arms. So. When I said that I simplified it by doing everything in perpendicular, I simplified it by everything being in perpendicular. And you guys aren't expected to do this, but I wanted to lay it out for you to see how simple we're actually making things for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? So are you we don't have to, like, I mean, we have to solve problems with all the problems that you solve will be in perpendicular. Meaning you don't have to calculate the components and you don't have to utilize the joint angles to de- determine the components in the, the sines and cosines. There are in your book. Yeah. Yeah. So everything you do is going to look like this. Everything that you're expected to do is going to look in perpendicular to one another. It's not going to look like this.
1: Yes, Dr. Doing the whole problem, you might
0: want to go back to one slide and show the math when you the just one I don't know if we have time to go through all that stuff. Because okay. we still got another big lecture it's to it's go through. There, this, is, this example is from your book, so if you guys want to see it in detail, um, you can go and look at the angle calculations and how everything is defined. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for a lot of stuff. If we did, it would be nice to be able to go through all these things. Um, Because when you can do, and when you can come up with these equations and do these calculations, then you're going to have a very good understanding, obviously, of what's going on as far as the forces and the torques associated. But, considering we've got so much going into this one course, unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all those things and provide that. Uh, But this is well explained in your book, for those of you guys that want to get... If you understand this, and you read it through your book, and you said, I get that, I get that, I get that... When you come to that, it's going to be very easy. So when you're studying, take that into account. Questions? All right. We will resume at 11. Mm-hmm. Dynamic analysis, can you guys see over here? With that? <laughs> Dynamic analyses, here's your course objectives associated with that. So what we've been talking about has been static situations or situations when velocity is constant, meaning you're not accelerating, you're not decelerating. Um, and that most commonly is not the case in real life, that's you know mostly a made up situation to have you guys understand concepts and calculations and obviously you can see once you get out of perpendicular it becomes a lot more complex. And then once you get into movement, It becomes even more complex. And so, if you want to go get a PhD in biomechanics, you can go ahead and do that and learn how to calculate all these things. But this is just going to give you, you want to do that, that's fine, that's cool. Um, But we're just going to talk about these a little bit. And because when you guys are out in the clinic, you're going to be working with folks that are moving and accelerating and decelerating related to their activities, their daily living. And you're going to read research papers that talk about how forces are applied, accelerations and decelerations kinematically applied to clinical populations, whether it's um, individuals walking with injury, individuals swinging a golf club that have back pain or shoulder pain, and they're talking about kinematics and accelerations and decelerations and forces associated with it, so this is just a very, 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 very brief introduction to all of those things. Um, but dynamic analysis is needed when the unbalanced forces and movement occurs with acceleration or deceleration. Um, the forces can be measured, and if applicable, it can be measured directly or indirectly. We'll talk about how to do that. In the picture you can see this individual is skiing obviously down a hill, and they've got a whole get up on, and you can see in the background, I don't know if you guys can see, but there's a tripod with a camera on there, and they're doing some sort of kinematic dynamic analysis of this individual skiing down a hill. Obviously that's not someone standing here like this. There's a lot of movement accelerations um, occurring side to side, front to back, and then reaction forces with the snow through his boots and his skis. So there's a whole lot going on there. They can be calculated, and I don't know this whole setup, but they may have some forces measurements going on through his boots and stuff. But this is set up for, is that a kinematic or kinetic analysis if they're using that camera to see how he moves? Kinematic, because it's just looking at the movement. What would make it kinetic? How could I make that a kinetic analysis? If I was measuring his force somehow, right. So you could have some sort of insoles in his boots that measure the forces going up and down, vertical forces within his body, as an example of kinetic analysis during that picture right there. So kinematics, you guys are already good on this, movement without the regard for forces which cause it and variables which you get during a kinematic analysis, Is position, usually in relation to the clinic it's a joint angle, Um, displacement, so movement of that joint, velocity, movement over time and then acceleration, time iterated once again. Kinematic analyses examine the actual patterns of human movement performing functional or sporting tasks. And what do you guys see in there that you should know? In that picture? Sorry. On the right hand Right-hand rule global coordinate system. It all comes back. And that does follow the convention so x is positive in the direction that individual is facing. Y is positive to the right, and Z is positive pointing upwards. So when will you see application of kinematic analyses? So you'll see this in folks that have um, pathology. So individuals with low back pain, there's a lot of work looking at how folks with low low back pain move, whether they're carrying objects or the way that they walk up and down stairs or walk on just a straight line. You can look at gait, which is just ambulation, walking, um, or jump landing. So the way that particularly females, which are more prone to ACL injuries, land can provide them the position which what they land in may make them more likely to tear their ACL. So we can study the way that they are, the position that they're landing in, and if we train them to land a different way, they're going to decrease their injury risk of tearing their ACL or hurting their knee. And there's a whole bunch of different pathological populations. Dr. Williams and I are working on a study looking at individuals with shoulder injury and seeing how their scapula moves relative to their thorax. And does it move differently side to side, and can clinicians see that on a clinical exam? Just another example. At-risk populations, so these can be applied to distance runners who are at risk for injury. Maybe the way that they're running, the motions that they're running when they're running are putting them at risk for injury, so we can do that through kinematic analyses. Um, female athletes, like I talked about, more likely to tear your ACL so we can look at the way that they land, the way that they run and cut and by studying the movements we can relate that to injury and if we can train them to move differently which has been shown that we can through certain exercises, they're less likely to tear their ACL. So kinematic analysis equipment can be very complex um, there's a couple 3D motion analysis systems. There's one across the street in the exercise science, sports science department with Dr. Stone, looking at primarily weightlifting, and there's one down the hallway here um, that we're using. The Dr. Williams and I are using related to shoulder injuries. So I'm going to give you guys just an introduction to these, and we'll talk about the history of kinematics um, and these different types of imaging equipment. And as you go down the list, they get more complicated and more expensive, obviously. So the overall goal is to provide data that can be utilized to determine kinematic variables. Again, position, displacement, velocity, and acceleration are your primary kinematic variables. Originally, sort of the history of kinematics was described just by looking at individuals and writing down essentially your observations. So this is, who is this? Art history majors? It's Vitruvian Man, correct. Who drew Vitruvian Man? Da Vinci, Vinci, maybe, one of the Italian guys, I'll buy it. Um, But, we'll say Da Vinci, because why not. Um, He was into studying lengths and distances, and so this was sort of one of the first models looking at kinematics, and it was just measuring and comparing proportions of body sizes and shapes and those types of things. Kinematics, like we do it today, um, was based on a challenge by the governor of California, Not that one, one long before him. So Leland Stanford was the governor of California in 1880-something. You guys have heard of Stanford University. So he gave a lot of money to start Stanford University. But he was the governor of California. And as the story goes, he was a drinker and a gambler and a cowboy who also governed California. And so when he was drinking one night with his friends, they got into a debate as to when horses are running down a track because they were drinking and gambling on the horses, is there a time when the horses have all four hooves not in weight bearing or all four hooves are in the air? And so he was arguing with someone else who probably had a lot of money and they put a wager on it. And so they're trying to figure out how can they figure this out? And so what they did was they hired someone from Kodak, Eastman Kodak, the picture company. And what they did was they set up the first kinematics experiment, essentially, and this is from the George Eastman Kodak House in, this was 1878, so it was before 1880. 1878, and they had a horse run as fast as they could, like in the Kentucky little trigonometry thing, horse run as fast as they could down a track, and what they did is every 21 inches, they put a wire underneath the track, And that wire was connected to a camera that would set up a trigger. So every time the horse went over, that wire would take a picture and another picture and another picture and another picture as the horse ran past. Um, So every time there's a weight, take a picture. And what they found was there's a time when the horse had all four hooves up in the air. So that's how kinematics, like it started today, initiated from a drunken bet, as most good things do start from drunken bets. Obviously, the technology that we use as I go into today will be a lot more sophisticated, but this is essentially the basis um, and where it all started from. And so it took a, you know, a guy with a lot of money who had a couple too many drinks to figure out how to do it. I'm sure this was not a cheap venture 150 years ago or 130 years ago. My, just a little side note, so my old dean of the school in New Zealand, he Uh, teaches physiotherapy and they're coming up on their 100th anniversary of physiotherapy which is the same as physical therapy in New Zealand so their physiotherapy school has been open for 100 years and he always has a quote when he talks at graduation and he says always do sober what you said you were going to do when you were drunk that way you learn to keep your mouth shut so I just thought about that related to this drunken bet, unless you got the money to afford to do it um so kinematics, today again, depends on the reference frame, so we got a global reference frame, which is usually relative to the space we've talked about before, and then we have a local reference frame, and when you guys are working with, if you're working with kinematics equipment or you're reading research papers related to your patients about kinematics, it's usually going to be related to joint position because that's how clinicians think. So they're not going to talk about movement in the X direction and the Y direction. They may talk about that when they're writing to engineers looking at the biomechanics of it. When they're talking to the clinicians, talking about the biomechanics, mechanics, over, they're going to talk about knee flexion angle, or knee varus angle, or knee valgus angle. So it's going to be clinically written, and most of the times you're going to read it relative to the local reference frame. Again, right-hand rule. Just wanted to throw that back in there. Might be something you want to know for your exam. Um, kinematic variables, so it's position, velocity, acceleration. And anatomically, what does that mean? It's joint angles. So we're going to look at joint angles joint velocities, and then joint segment acceleration. So it's taking the strict biomechanical definitions and putting it into anatomical terms that you guys will see. One, made, one way to measure that is with an electrogoniometer. And these are just a couple of examples. So here's an um, electrogoniometer, obviously crossing the knee. Here's a setup of multiple electrogoniometers looking at individual finger range of motion, and here you have an individual looking at the ankle inversion and eversion or varus valgus at the ankle joint. An electrogoniometer goniometer is what? Expensive. It's, like <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive relative to the plastic goniometers you guys are talking about in basic skills, but what would it do? It measures, like dynamic, motion. It measures dynamic motion, so it electrically measures range of motion. Electrogoniometer, electrical measurement of range of motion. And it can do it throughout dynamically, so it can go throughout a movement. Are electrogoniometers multi Some of them are and some are not. So some of them can measure in one plane of motion. So here we're measuring knee flexion extension. You may also be able to measure knee varus and valgus associated with that. It just depends on how it's set up. But some of them are set up for three dimensions and some are not. Obviously, if it is, it's more expensive. So the way the electric works is you have two components which you attach to two body segments with your axis of rotation in between those, and there's a voltage that goes between those two segments. Electricity is positionally dependent, so as you bend your knee, the voltage going from one side to the other is going to change based on the amount of bend or displacement in that cord, which is equivalent to the displacement in your knee angle, for example. And so how that voltage changes between those two, um, the two ends here, the two green components there, is how your knee, as in this example, flends or extends, flexes or extends. Um, And the voltage changes as the angle changes. Now the problem with this is all you're really measuring is a voltage, so you have to define the voltage when you're using it, which is associated with your endpoints. So if my knee's extended, I'm gonna have that voltage associated with it, and with maximal flexion, If I were to take these two and put it into 140 degrees of knee flexion that we have available to us, that's going to have a decrease in the voltage between the two. And then you just sort of interpolate between those two points. Another instrument that we can use to measure kinematics is an accelerometer. And as it sounds, it measures accelerations or decelerations. You can use this, and you can strap it onto an individual's body. This individual has an uh, accelerometer onto their leg, and it's a little bit high, but um, this was used for a running study, and we're looking at acceleration. You can look at acceleration in different planes as well, so anterior, posterior, medial, lateral, superior, inferior. When someone is running, and they're in stance, the acceleration of their leg is due (laughs) to the acceleration of gravity because they're in stance. When they're in swing phase, the acceleration is not going to be equal to gravity. So we used this accelerometer when he was running, when he went into heel strike and he was weight bearing on that leg, the only acceleration, superior or inferior, was due to gravity. So we knew that he's, his heel was on the ground, so that's how we defined heel strike in that running study. Does anyone use accelerometers? Not that you guys know of. When you run, they put them in like iPhones and iPods now. Yep. Yep. So the Nike Plus thing is based on accelerometer. Your iPhone probably has one. Who has a laptop? Most laptops today have an accelerometer built in, so that when you drop it in your computer, the accelerometer appreciates that it's the computer is accelerating at the rate of gravity. It will kill the hard drive. So if you actually damage the hard drive, you won't lose any information on it. Accelerometers are what initiate the function of an airbag in your car. So there's a minimum threshold, and when you're in a car accident and the airbag goes off, it's due to a certain number amount of deceleration. That deceleration is triggered by an accelerometer <laughs> somewhere within the engine. So it's used a lot, not necessarily for kinematic analyses, but within daily life. And you guys now know at least a couple more things where it's used. Accelerometer is a force transducer. Uh, it converts input energy to output energy and form another that measures acceleration and gravity. So you're directly measuring acceleration, uh, but the output that you're getting is electrical because it's um, using electric to do that. And you can get force and acceleration from that once you do a little bit of math. So when you have an accelerometer, you use acceleration the time associated with that to get velocity, and the time associated with that to get position. Whereas if you were doing kinematic analyses based on a positional measurement, you're gonna have to take the time associated with that to get velocity, and the time associated with that to get acceleration. So it's all kinematic analyses, but different ways of getting at either acceleration or position, depending on what you're, the equipment that you're using. So if you're trying to measure acceleration, you're a whole lot better to use an accelerometer than you are to use an goniometer. and if you're trying to measure joint position, you're a whole lot better using an goniometer than you are an accelerometer. So they'll have their specific uses depending on how you want to utilize their the equipment that you have. Cinematography. This is just straight up video camera. Almost everybody's got a video camera on their phone these days. Um, The standard video takes essentially 30 pictures per second, or 30 frames per second, and depending on the details of it, there's, um, the way that it's interpolated is a little bit different, but generally it's about 30 frames per second, and obviously if you want to get more of a detailed picture of what's going on, you're going to have to take more frames per second than that. And um, as an example, this Photon camera, takes 10,000 frames per second and I got a couple videos so you guys see what that's like. So if you want to look at golf which is a pretty high speed sport, you can look at the swing and you can use a regular video camera but it's still probably not going to be fast enough. You're going to see the club as a blur throughout the movement that it goes through. If you use a regular video camera to try and see the deformation of a golf ball when the club hits it, you're not going to see anything. So at 10,000 frames per second, this video camera is going to show the club hit the ball and you can see the ball deform and then go off the tee. So when you think of a golf ball, you don't think of, you think of a solid object, you don't think of something that's going to deform. And you can see that that is not, you can see Galloway or it's a Calloway, I'm not sure which it is. Um, you can, it's, the L's are deformed, so it actually deforms as it's hit. Now if I look at that force over time, what's that going to give me? Times time, I should say. Force times time. No, not acceleration. Impulse is correct. So if I wanted to make that ball go further, what could I do? Hit it harder, or Increase the time. How am I going to increase the time? Well, yeah, so depending on what you hit it with, if you don't hit it with a golf club, you can hit it with something that's deformable to provide you a recoil, or you could change the properties of the golf ball. So that's why it's a whole lot easier to hit a ball far than it is a golf ball with a baseball bat because the impulse, the time, increases a whole lot more. See, it all comes back. Eventually at least in my mind. Now there's some other fun stuff that you can look at in YouTube when you put in Frotown Camera. So this is a dart going through four water balloons hanging from some sort of string. This is 10,000 frames per second. Obviously that's pretty quick you wouldn't be able to see this just by watching it in real time. And if you put, you know, Photron into YouTube, you can see like watermelons exploding and bullets going through glasses of red water and all different sorts of stuff. So, when you guys are supposed to be studying Sunday night for your exam, which is due Sunday at midnight, um, something to look at. You can, you can tell whoever's watching you that you're studying. I'm just trying to learn some cinematography. Um, so cinematography. Those examples, you can use. You only used one camera, but you can use more than that. So you can get different planes of movement associated with that. It allows you to look at more than one dimension of the movement. And once you do that, um, even if you don't do that, most of the times those video cameras are linked to a software program, which allows the calculation of kinematic variables, usually just joint angles that you're looking at. And that involves a pro- process known as digitizing, which is a big pain in the behind. Um, Essentially, what you have to do is you have to look at each frame, and in a regular standard video camera, it's 30 frames per second, and actually define the hip joint center rotation, the knee joint center rotation, and the ankle joint center rotation, to calculate a joint angle, and go on to the next frame. 30 frames per second times a four-second movement is a lot of frames. And that's only for one plane of movement, for one joint. So it can get very detailed. That's why you have graduate students. So we don't have to do those types of things. But now there's computers that do all that stuff. Um, but that was sort of back in the day. Imaging equipment, um, there's optical systems which are active and passive. I'll talk about those. An active optical system uses special cameras that pick up blinking lights that you attach to your body. So here's a light here, here's a light here, 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 on the toes. So this study looks like they were looking at toe movement and foot movement relative to one another, and each of these little sensors here has a red light in it, which is infrared, but you view it as red, and it blinks 300 to 3,000 times per second. So when we see it, it just looks like a red light, but when the special cameras see it, it sees all those individual blinks. And then what it does is it basically plots the movement of each of those blinks on a graph to determine how those joint positions vary as this person walks in front of you or runs in front of you or jumps off of a cliff or something. Um, So this is known as an active system because the markers are active. These are actually blinking, sending information into a special camera. The lights are flashed sequentially, like I said, and it's captured by special cameras which then can calculate the kinematic variables. If you want to determine joint velocities and accelerations, you could do that with some math also. But again, obviously this is very detailed mathematical engineering type things, computer software stuff. That's something you're going to do by hand. Video-based image analysis, those folks that were exercise science here, they have a Vicon system across the street which utilizes this technology. You can combine it with a regular video camera if you like. And it uses a similar technology in that an individual wears markers, except these markers are passive, meaning that they are reflecting the infrared light coming from the cameras. And the cameras do the same thing, so they send a certain number of signals that reflects off of these markers, and then it goes back into the system, and then you can track the movement based on the movement of those markers in space. That's obviously going to be a computer software type thing again, so this digital signal is fed into the computer, and then you can get coordinate data from that based on how those move relative to one another and relative to the, so relative to the local coordinate system and relative to the global coordinate system. If I was looking at how these move relative to the local coordinate system, what am I gonna be looking at? We've got a marker here, here, and here, and here. How those move relative to one another is gonna tell me what? joint position, right? So it's going to be related to his hip, or his knee, or his ankle. As opposed to how they all move in space, is going to be relative to the global coordinate system. Good. Um, so this very famous individual is Dr. James Smolagai. He and I did our PhDs together. And he looked at highly trained distance runners, so national level um, 10, 5k, 10k guys. And he was looking to see which muscles fatigue the fastest when running. In that elite population, what muscle fatigues fastest when you're running? This is just trivia. Take it home and tell it at the party. Any guesses? Interior tip. Interior tip. Fair. Good guess. Heart. Heart. Probably a good guess. (laughs) <laughs> and you guys, probably not in these distance folks, but I would buy heart. That's a good one. We didn't measure heart, so I couldn't say that. And maybe heart. Smile muscles? <laughs> I'm sure they're not smiling They're probably not smiling. So the muscle fatigue is the fastest is your lats when you're running, and highly trained distance runners. So it's upper extremity fatigue that limits distance running and highly trained individuals as they swing their arm back and forth. Who knew? In your back. Yeah. Um, some of the problems with these types of motion analysis system is that we're assuming that when we put these markers on an individual's skin, that how that marker moves is how that person's body segment moves. What we don't really account for, or you maybe don't account for in your sort of cursory thought of that, is that skin movement occurs independent of the limb movement. So my skin can move without my humerus moving. The computer appreciates that as my humerus moving and not my skin moving because we're told the computer that that segment is defined by these markers and that's my humerus. Um, so in order to determine how much skin movement occurs, you take a screw and you drill it into someone's bone as shown here, and you put a reflective marker on the end of that. And then you put another marker on their skin up here, which you guys can't see in the shade. And how this one moves relative to that one is the amount of skin movement that's associated with this technology. Now I'm looking for people to volunteer. Is anyone <laughs> available to help me out? Now, um, So this is what has been done usually on two or three graduate students associated with a project. And then they can look at uh, skin movement versus segment movement. Another way to determine kinematic analysis is an electromagnetic tracking device. We have one of these down the hallway, um, which you guys will see at some point in time this semester, I hope. And what we do in this one is there is an electromagnetic transmitter that looks like this. This is old school. There's a newer one now. And you wear special magnets on your skin. And so this transmitter sends out a magnetic field. How these special magnets move in that magnetic field is how your body part Moves in space. If I put in multiple magnets, I can compare joint an angles and those types of things. Um, provides three D information, and that information obviously is hardwired into a computer again, so it's all computer software stuff, and it gives you position and orientation relative to the transmitter. That's what I just said. More of what I just said. Finally, you can do. Center radiography, which sounds like what if you break down the term? So it's, yeah, it's a video analysis of an x-ray or a radiograph or some type of imaging equipment. And here's a little example of the mathematics behind calculating some of the center radiography. Um, if you guys can replicate on your exam, I'll give you an extra 5%. <laughs> and you can do it within the time that I give you guys. Um, so what this does is it uses a diagnostic technique whether it's an x-ray, a CT scan MRI um, in which a movie camera is used to film those images or computer software is used to film those images of internal body structures um, and then how those sequential x-rays or CTs or MRs are interpreted depends on the way that they do it so you can have a multi-planar x-ray or a multi-planar x-ray with augmentation which we'll talk about in a second so center radiography, you have an individual, for example, we're trying to see how much rotation, axial rotation, occurs between the tibia and the fibula. You guys, if you remember back from lab last week, we talked about axial rotation. So here's my femur, here's my tibia. I'm talking about this type of rotation that occurs. It's a very small amount of movement that we don't want to occur because it's going to cause injury most of the time, right? So we want it to be minimized as much as possible. We can measure that using sequential x-rays as an individual walk. So as I walk this way, I have a certain amount of axial rotation that occurs in my tibia relative to my femur. Um, now using all this stuff before, I can't calculate it, but by using an x-ray taken 200, 300, 400 times per second, then I can calculate the amount of rotation that occurs there. Um, and that's essentially what you do. Is you just look at a specific body segment here. Obviously, they're looking at the scapula relative to the clavicle. And they're taking x rays, and what they do is they line up the anatomical parts of the bone, and as they connect that, all computer programs, they connect a specific part of the bone. So they connect the inferior angle from frame one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, up to however many thousands of frames they have. They can see how that moves. But it's not just one point, it's multiple points to make sure that the whole bone is moving. So it's very complex mathematically and uh, very expensive, as you would imagine. Now in order to augment that, what they have been doing, and they're not doing a whole lot anymore, is when you have surgery, they put metal BBs into your bones. Because metal BBs are easier to track on an x-ray than anatomical positions are. So they put in a couple BBs, they have a needle, they drill a hole, put in a metal ball, and they take it out and they leave the ball in there until you die. Um, And then they do the same thing again, they have you walk across, or whatever analysis they're doing, and see how those metal balls move relative to one another. So that's cine-radiography with augmentation. Questions about kinematic analysis? It's just kind of a, this is what's going on type thing. This is what you guys will read about when you're reading about how to treat your knee patients or people with back injury or shoulder patients or those types of things. So kinetics is again what? Related to forces, all about forces. what causes the body to move the way that it does? It uses moment, uh, momentum, mass, inertia, and force, all those things you guys know all about. So internal forces, joint reaction, muscle forces, ligament, tendon, etc. It's very difficult to measure all of these forces at one time, but it can be done. and what you have to do to do that, what you do to facilitate that is you put a force transducer or something that measures force in each of those tissues, so it's going to be a surgical implantation to calculate all those specific forces. Obviously very expensive, very invasive, very risky as far as an infection standpoint, and therefore almost never done in humans. Sometimes done in cadavers, but not often done in live humans. Yes? So has it ever been done on a live human? It probably has. Not that I know of specifically, but I would say that it probably has. It definitely has in animals, rabbits and monkeys and those types of things. Animals. Usually you're just measuring one force and associated with that. So you guys did handheld dynamometry in lab last week? Yep. Um, So you guys know what those are. Grip strength dynamometer does the same thing. So these are all just measuring forces and then if you have the moment arm, obviously you can measure the torque associated with that. The scale is another example associated with that. So it's just measuring forces. Um, Uniplanar forces with which um, the handheld time hours that you guys did in lab. Isokinetics, um, I think Dr. Williams mentioned this. We're going to talk about and we're going to give you guys an example of isokinetics when we get into muscle physiology and muscle tissue mechanics in the next sort of block in this course. And we have a Humac machine down the hall. Some of the guys you may have seen, like a Biodex machine or a Cybex machine. Uh, it's the same technology, just a different company. You can measure torque, you can measure isometrics, um, you can measure isokinetics. And it's able to measure most joints in the body depending on the attachments that you have for the machine. So here the individual looking at knee, maybe flexion or extension torques, um, as they bend and extend their flex and extend their knee. But if you put a different attachment on, you can look at shoulder, a different attachment, you can look at elbow and those types of things. So you can measure force and torque, and we'll give you guys a demo and get more into that related to um, tissue mechanics. When you do an isokinetic analysis, and you guys will see this in your labs, um, but you can get Torque, you can get work, work, you can get the range of motion that they went through. Peak torque, they can give you some sort of fatigue and the total work done. Here, we're comparing the blue curve, you guys can see it as the bigger one or the higher one. It's the right side versus the left side. Maybe I want to look at injured to uninjured knee extension, torque production or something like that. <clears throat> so you get reports, and sometimes it's very objective information, so it provides good information relative to the ability of a muscle to produce torque, um, but there are limitations, which Dr. Williams will talk to you guys about when he talks about tissue or muscle mechanics. The force transducer we've talked about, most common example is a force plate or a force platform. Um, I showed you, if you guys remember, kinetic analyses when I described it. There was a guy running really high-speed video camera, and they showed his body weight, the vertical reaction forces. So that's all we're looking at here. This is the vertical ground reaction force in blue anterior and posterior ground reaction force, they call it shear, in this picture that's the red, and your medial lateral shear is the green. We talked about your impulse, um, force over time, impulse of so an anterior, impulse and a posterior impulse relative to someone speeding up or slowing down, if you guys remember those slides from before. A force transducer is just an instrument which measures force in one or more directions. And if you want to measure it in more than one direction, you can have a local coordinate system or a global coordinate system. That's just an example. Internal forces, like I said, it's very difficult to measure all of those. So what we do is we measure external forces and then we use some mathematics to apply that to the whole body segment, usually the lower extremity, because it's easiest to measure forces that way. Um, that mathematical process is known as inverse dynamics. And here is the setup of the equation to measure inverse dynamics from a force plate um, that's placed under this individual's foot. Again, not something you guys will have to do, but um, understand that it is done. When you're doing inverse dynamics, you're going to need the motion that occurs there, the segmental masses, the inertial properties, acceleration, deceleration, uh, center of masses, and then you can infer the motion, or the forces that are causing motion. So this individual in this picture down here, I thought it was kind of a cool picture. Um, there's a kin- kinematic analysis because there's an infrared reflective camera there, and there's a kinetic analysis at the same time because he's standing or landing on a force plate. So I'm not exactly sure what the task he's doing. Maybe he's running and then going to cut to one side, and they want to look at the position of his joints using the cameras and the forces in his leg with that force plate in all different directions. And very frequently, those are combined so that you can look at forces and kinematics at the same time. Because we're only measuring the force associated with the lower extremity relative to his body weight and the position, we can't look at specific joints, muscles, ligaments, etc. We're going to get one force, which is his vertical ground reaction force, and we're going to apply that to the whole lower extremity. So there is error associated in that because it's just saying one force and that's applied through his whole lower extremity and really throughout his whole body. We're just going to assume that it doesn't change as it goes up the kinetic chain even though it actually does. So basically we're assuming that all the segments are rigid. We already know that they're not. Gait analysis, you can use the kinematics to look at ambulation. And you can use kinetics to look at forces, you can look at healthy walking running, people without ACLs, kids with cerebral palsy, and on and on and on. So lots of times gait analysis is going to look at the kinematics and the kinetics associated with some sort of injured population. Within gait, which you guys will get in one of the basic skills courses, I'm not sure which one, Dr. Breeze and Dr. Davenport. Um, you guys will get into the gait cycle specifically, but gait analysis is just looking at and defining how an individual walks. And gait is uh, described relative to the events during the gait cycle. So, if you look at your x-axis here, I don't know how well you guys can see it, but one of this individual's legs is shaded in black and the other one is in white. And this Kinematic knee flexion extension, so this is your knee joint angles, knee flexion going positive, knee extension going negative, is based on the position of that individual throughout the gait cycle. So the gait cycle is initiated with heel strike on my right side, for example. That's going to be shown as here, and that's the initiation or zero as a percentage of my gait cycle. And as I go throughout gait relative to my right leg, I'm going to go from heel strike to foot flat, indicated there. Here I'm going to go into terminal stance, so I'm starting to lift my heel up, and then I go into swing phase. And as soon as I initiate on the same side again, I'm starting to cycle over again. So here I'm at 0%, sorry as you guys can see, 0% 0% again. So that's the whole gait cycle. Indicated here, and usually about 60% of the gait cycle, you're in stance, so you're standing on one leg, and then 40%, the last 40%, you're in swing, so your foot is not on the ground. And you can look at the knee angle of flexion extension based on the position during the gait cycle. So, my knee extension, when I have a heel strike, my knee is fully extended or I'm at zero degrees of knee flexion. And then it's going to change, my knee flexion angle is going to change as I go throughout the gait cycle. Once I'm in swing phase, my knee flexion is going to be high so that I can not trip on my toes. And then you start over again back here. So kinematic data and force data is going to be relative to time points during the gait cycle as indicated on the x-axis there. Now you can look at all three planes, it's easy to look at knee flexion and section. Pelvic obliquity is the superior inferior position of my pelvis. So this is going to be, um, throughout the gait cycle is going to be indicated across the x-axis here. And pelvic obliquity is either up or down. So as I walk toward you guys in heel strike, my pelvis on this side is going to be up relative to my pelvis on this side. And then as I go into swing phase, my pelvis is going to drop on that side because it's going to be up on this side. So that's what's indicated by the sort of gray areas here. And it's the same with the red and the blue. So you can look at three planes of movement. It's easiest just to look at one at a time, but you can combine them all. Just another example. Kinetics during gait, so usually you're going to use force plates like we talked about before. You can also use pressure sensitive insoles. And there's an individual actually measuring their standing balance on a force plate. We talked about forces during gait and running before, um, relative to impulse before, and just an example of kinetics, so I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot. But again, here's going to be your vertical ground reaction forces. Is this solid line during gait? And then this dashed line is going to be your anterior reaction forces associated with gait. And then you can see it only goes to 60% of the gait cycle. Why is there no force associated with that? Because they're going to be in swing phase. So you only have that reaction forces when they're in stance, when there's forces being applied to the joints of that lower extremity. And depending on the type of force plate you have or the type of... um, technology using, you get it three planes, sometimes two planes, sometimes one plane. Also like I sort of mentioned earlier, that skier at the beginning, we could be looking at forces had he been wearing one of these insoles in his boots, and uh, one of the limitations with these insoles is that they only give you the vertical ground reaction forces, but they give it very locally. So here is pressure mapping of an individual's heel, and they have individual pressure sensors throughout the whole foot, so you can get pressure mapping in a bunch of different areas, so if you want to see where they're vertically loading on the foot, you can see they're vertically loading, this is going to be a left foot, they have some load on the heel, a lateral load, and then a load on the big toe probably when they go in for push-up. So they can look at specific areas of the foot, and here you can see specific areas of the foot as well, you just look at that from a vertical standpoint, it's going to be this, um, just iterated from a vertical standpoint as opposed to lateral. Again, it's more localized, so you can look at specific areas of the foot where those forces are applied, but it's only going to be in one plane, which is usually the z-axis relative to the standard global reference frame. Woo! I'm done. Questions? Lab in an hour? In 12 minutes for some of you folks, 46 hours for the rest of you guys.